What? 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 Just deep, just deep, just deep enough. This is Josh and Tracy. Here we are on the Just Deep Enough show. We're recording, honey. Oh, we are. We're recording already? Yep, it's happening. Okay. I've got my cup of coffee. I've got, got my some... cup of coffee. And here we are. We're, we're having our discussion. Hey, Josh, how come the Just Deep... Is the, that the Just Deep Enough photo now? Sounds like just a picture of you. Well, that, well yeah. You're, Tracy's pointing out a, a website that has my picture on it. And, uh, That's not the Just Deep Enough logo page no, now, is it? No, it's not. I did not change. This is the Just Deep Enough with Josh. I think I signed in with a different this username. This is the Just Deep Enough with Josh and yeah. Tracy. So yeah. we, didn't just, yeah. we didn't just cause us a bunch of troubles, did you say? No, no, no troubles. No troubles. I, I have Are we own. on the right what, podcast right now? Can yeah, the, okay. right Are now. Sure? It's, it's recording. Sure it's sure? Okay. I'm sure, 100%. Okay, all right. Even all if right. it's not, we'll make it work. Okay, fair enough, because I don't want no trouble. All right, so it's been a long time since we recorded a podcast. It's because we've been thinking very profound thoughts 24 hours, 24-7. It's hard to even talk when you're thinking all those thoughts all the time. Yeah, so we've, we've stored up all kinds of really good things to say. I'd be lying if I said I didn't just spew the thoughts as soon as they come into my head, though. That, that's, yeah. dis- that's a lie. Uh-huh. That's just a lie. Isn't that what we all do all the time, though? No. No, some people think ahead of time, plan carefully, and say things after, yes. after deep reflection. Some people even don't even say things at all, after, even after the reflection. Oh. Which I look at those people and I go, wow, yeah. how do they do it? This is a carefully scripted performance that we're operating from right now. You know, with the script being written Which, as we I didn't speak. get the script in advance. I didn't. This there is no script involved oh, dang in this. It. Is that obvious to all of our listeners? All all of our listener. <laughs> all of our listener. Yes. Isn't that obvious to me? <laughs> <laughs> one of one of our most regular one regular listener. I just like to give a shout out to Josh who's been listening to our podcast regularly ever Josh, since we put Josh it out. Josh is doing the buy a coffee, buy me a coffee uh, platform by sending me mm-hmm. a coffee, giving yeah. me a coffee right now. That's right. I just like to. So glad that Josh is with us. With us, he's always listening to our podcast ever since it began. You know, good old Josh. Yeah, that's me, by the way. For those of you who probably aren't listening to this. Who are listening to this? Okay, wow. so oh. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, I hear you, man. Okay, so we discussed about. Um, so, so for anyone who stayed on for two and a half minutes while we rambled, thank you for staying. Um, we're gonna today. We were gonna talk about a topic that we both find very interesting, which is the topic of addiction, how it uh, works, different approaches to understanding it perhaps even interacting with it mm-hmm. in fact even possibly choosing a sober lifestyle and the inherent mm-hmm. difficulties with mm-hmm. that sometimes yeah and along with that lifestyle choice topic I'm also curious bringing into the conversation like the public perception of addiction you know frequently uh, discussions books whatever on addiction are written for people recovery recovering from addiction and they're written for those people or maybe clinicians or maybe family members um, I, I'm interested in expanding the concepts out 
to because it's a it's a systemic issue. It's not isolated within one individual. You know, as evidence. You mean addiction doesn't just affect the person who's addicted. That and that the topic of addiction is worthy of understanding by those even who feel it to be something that they are blessedly not experiencing. Yeah. 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 Agreed. Okay. So, um, I know that you are very active in Recovery Dharma. Yeah, that's a a peer-led addiction recovery group that utilizes Buddhist principles to structure its recovery groups. And it's getting really big. It is, you know, both nationally, internationally, and of course, even in humble little Boise, it's continuing to grow. I just got a phone call from a local treatment center recently asking if some of the people from Boise's Recovery Dharma meetings would be interested in talking to some folks at the treatment center. So, you know, I, I think that there there's always room to include additional ways of both understanding and recovering from addiction. And that's where discussions come in handy, is to just expand that. Yeah, and we both like to participate sometimes in some uh, um, Phoenix Recovery Organization stuff. Mm-hmm. which is another cool um, organization that is into looking for ways for people to have sober activities that are not, um, that isn't necessarily AA. Because I think AA, which I am, you know, I would say I am a fan of AA. I think it's a really helpful thing for people. AA and NA and other 12-step programs I think are really helpful to people, especially especially early recovery because it's very structured and I think some structure is really helpful. But then on the other hand, I am also aware of the fact that I'm kind of biased because my first training in helping folks with addiction was a very AA heavy program. And so I got to see how that works. But there's a lot of, one thing I like about uh, Phoenix Recovery is they always, in part of their spiel is that they support all paths to recovery. Mm-hmm. So that means, you know, if somebody can do it on their own or do it in some other way or do it with recovery dharma or do it through whatever it is that they're very supportive of that. And I do mm-hmm. like that. I'm really looking right now at my own approach because as a therapist, um, I feel like because of the way I was trained in said treatment, substance use disorder treatment, which they're sometimes now referring to SUD, substance use disorder acronym. Um, the way I got trained up in it, I think, um, may not have been the best approach. It's not a bad, I I don't think it's bad, but I, I think, um, I'm beginning to look at it a little differently. And I know that you are very, always bring up the point about the trauma history that exists with a lot of folks. In, in substance use disorder and that that might be mm-hmm. isn't that true I mean that that looking at that aspect of it and not looking at it as a reaction mm-hmm. to possibly trauma or mm-hmm. some other stuff what what is your okay so blah 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 let me ask you what do you what's your conception of what is addiction why do people have it other than the fact that substances for instance are addictive mm-hmm. but not everybody gets addicted so what do you think what do you think, and that's talking about substances, but there's other stuff to get addicted to, like sex, mm-hmm. 
Um, there's, you know, work, mm-hmm. there's working out, there's all kinds of different ways that people can cause themselves trouble with obsessive compulsive behaviors. Um, I think everybody is addicted. Um, it's just like many things, there is a spectrum. The spectrum on which everybody is addicted, though, is not the kind of spectrum that you would think like somebody who drinks a little bit might be an alcoholic and someone who drinks a lot might be an alcoholic, even if they drink different amounts. The spectrum that I am talking about is the dispersal of behavior. Some people have a central addiction that is a central um, substance or behavior. You know, the, the drug of choice, the behavior of choice. Um, I truly think that everybody is in the midst of addiction. It's just part of the human condition. Mm-hmm. Um, the majority of us, I think, basically experience what we call, what I call, <laughs> not we, um, like uh, the, the shotgun variety of di- addiction versus the laser variety. Mm-hmm. So the general person, like, bops around from their addiction they you know they bop to the phone they bop to the shopping they they bop to the drink to the beers um to that uh codependent conversation and they're basically hopping you know and so Hmm. it is it is equal the the energy of that kind of addiction hopping process and the the laser pointed version of a progressive substance or behavior I think that is the spectrum. It goes from narrow single to uh, like a broad spectrum. And I think that it's just really addiction is a matter of how people interact with those different pushes and pulls, the feelings. And it, yeah, I, I will say it's trauma. Um, but I think the people that have a, um, a primary or kind of laser addiction have more primary or focused traumas where I say why why do you um, think a laser a laser addiction would be more correlated to trauma than a hop around kind I don't know if it's equated to trauma and this is a theory I'm coming up with right now because sometimes we're sort of spontaneous like my brain just started gurgling here as we're talking well yeah and I will ask questions about the gurgle yeah the gurgle has um it's a curious thing okay so uh my thinking is this, that uh, in a moment of like a severe, uh, well, let's say if a person, I'm not going to give a scenario, I'm just going to give the, the setup. So a human, um, when they are in some phase of life, most likely a developmental phase, when they have an intense experience um, that really... High impact. High impact experience. And let's say it's the kind of experience that's so intense that they feel like they don't know what to do with it and it's uncomfortable and they want to fix it. They want to feel comforted. They want to feel safe, connected, or just even to understand what's happening. Sure. And if that person, and I don't think it's like as simple as like associating the two, but if that person discovers a substance or an activity that meets that need just a little bit I think it just lays the foundations for wanting to repeat that process Mm, sure well yeah and so yeah so that speaks to I was going about to ask like the people that hop around 
from from distraction to distraction because one way to look at it you know one of the things that an addiction does is it it soothes it mm-hmm. soothes it distracts it soothes and distracts right mm-hmm. from this stuff so i'm not sure i don't know um i think some people for a variety of reasons might particularly laser focus on a particular soothing behavior like um but but i'm not sure that they're any less that's any less problematic or any more problematic than the hop around people like we're all hopping around a lot but Mm -hmm. so like so what so so what what need do you so i'm saying that i think addiction is trying is an is an effort by the mind to soothe and distract would you does that make sense or you want to elaborate on that or correct it in any way well I would elaborate it. I want to bring in the concept of how it helps people feel like connected to other people. Um, so what is it? What is it? Soothing is. I think it soothes. Uh, like loneliness is one of the things it soothes, mm-hmm. and I mean that is the thing I think that it most intensely soothes is loneliness. And the thing that it most intensely distracts people from, I don't know, I just want to say mortality, you know, on some level, I just, that's just the, what pops into my head is okay. that, that is the, what it's a distraction from. Hmm. Interesting. Um, interesting. But I would also say that ironically, perhaps, or is that people in addiction tend to get increasingly more and more lonely. They do. Yeah. And a lot of addictions will kill you. They will. So that distraction from mortality isn't doesn't work out always, and the mm-hmm. um, soothing from loneliness, mm-hmm. uh, it might for a hot minute kind of soothe it, but it also tends to people tend to end up on the other side of you know any addiction feeling kind of isolated, even from the people who are co- who are conjointly mm-hmm. participating in in their addiction style mm-hmm. yeah I, part of me wants to briefly you know because we were fleshing out like a definition of addiction some causal factors in it believe it or not though i want to briefly discuss like what what isolation means you know because it could mean that we have the experience of like a part of us is isolated whereas another portion of us or part of our lives isn't isolated you know a good example might mean a really advanced functional alcoholic still might go to work still might even have a, a marriage that's intact but i mean you've been in counseling before and you've probably talked to people that have functional kind of lives as a counselor you know who say will say they feel very lonely, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yet, job, wife, and all this. So, mm-hmm. th- this isolation that it's created, it's it's an internal sense of isolation, right? Right. So, right. what exactly is isolated? Is kind of where I want the discussion mm-hmm. to go. What is isolated? Yeah. Well, I mean, the well, I think people have a sense. I think that there is deeper meaning in the universe. I think people have a sense that real connection 
and vulnerable connection with other human beings is desirable. People have mm-hmm. an innate, deep down understanding mm-hmm. of that, mm-hmm. but then they have a lack of knowledge and skills and inner trust mm-hmm. that it is safe to do that. And so then people start acting things out in a way that is a kind of, um, like I would say, sex sex without, without vulnerability is just a poor man's intimacy, right? Mm-hmm. Like people use the term intimacy mm-hmm. as a euphemism for sex all the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm always like, mm, it's not really intimacy unless it's intimate. Like intimacy can exist without sex. And yeah. sex can in, and can exist without intimacy, but but I think people but you see folks who have like for instance a sex addiction, are often continually trying to get to the deeper meaning of connection that could exist within sex, mm-hmm. and and if you have intimacy combined with sex, that's a very special sort of connection. It's like especially profound, mm-hmm. but because people don't but it but. But sex without intimacy makes people feel very alone and mm-hmm. abandoned, mm-hmm. you know, emotionally. The, the kind of intimacy that occurs for most people at the beginning of their recovery process is the intimacy that occurs in the process of asking for help. So mm, Admitting that you need help at all. I guess that's even vulnerable. a precursor. Yeah. yeah. Admitting mean, that you don't have it all figured out, which feels scary to people in general, mm-hmm. whether it's in addiction or yeah. not. People are terrified of admitting to themselves that they that they have anything. People people feel shame about the fact that they have problems. Mm-hmm. That's why they. It's why people sometimes wait till things have gotten really, really bad before they go to a therapist. Because mm-hmm. and then they go to throw up at the therapist's office and say, in one way or another, I'm broken, mm-hmm. right? And I'm like, no, you ain't broken, but but it's um, <laughs> no, not broken. But it, but but they feel like they have to get to that point of desperation before they can say, hey, I I I, I don't know what to do, mm-hmm. and um. So that whole idea of like just admitting that you need help is so scary for people. Yeah. You know, let, let's shift gears a little bit here because one, one of the uh, goals of this conversation that you mentioned in the beginning was this, this idea of one of the ways to make um, like an addiction recovery friendly world um, more accessible is creating spaces in our community, activities, whatever, mm-hmm. where not engaging in compulsive or addictive behaviors is seen as as cool, as as trendy, as interesting, as desirable. You know, mm-hmm. currently, um, if one is at a party and not drinking, there's a possibility someone will have to explain why they're not drinking. That kind of yeah, thing, that kind of yeah. Thing or or like you know? or that is one of and that that is one of the main things when I've got folks that are kind of in contemplation of like thinking about maybe changing their drinking behavior or maybe even being trying out um, sobriety. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They'll say, "Well, 
my friends, I'll, you know, it'll, I, what will I tell my friends? I'll have to make up some reason why I'm not drinking. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll, cause I have, cause I'm on antibiotics or because I have a, something going on or whatever, mm-hmm. right? But, and, and it's like, well, how come, why, why not say you just don't feel like drinking? Well, cause they'll, they'll be uncomfortable. They won't like that. They'll, they'll say, you should, why can't mm-hmm. you just drink? And then when people do try, you know, with their existing friend groups that might already also be, you know, using, substances or especially or alcohol mm-hmm. um a lot and um their friends will even say yeah like well can't you just drink a little yeah like because the friends because it is so there is this actual it's not just an illusion that mm-hmm. when a, when there's somebody not drinking among a bunch of people who are drinking mm-hmm. it's like they're like weird or something like oh you're not drinking so you're weird and i think it comes from the other people are afraid that they're gonna be judged or something like yeah if i if you're if i'm drinking and you're not then you're judging me it's like nah mm-hmm. maybe i just don't want to yeah. drink so i just don't like it so i mean so i think for me like i don't happen to alcohol doesn't happen to be one of the things that i mean i could get i could develop yeah. it's i'm 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 a, i could possibly develop a drinking problem um it's the but i never did yeah i'm not saying i'm immune to it i never did but then um but I just decided that I prefer a sober lifestyle. But it feels weird. And I feel like it does feel weird to me even mm-hmm. sometimes. Because I feel like um, people always assume like, oh, well, we should go have a drink. Or, oh, well, let's go. If we're going to do this, yeah. let's have a drink. Do you think it'll ever change? That there'll ever be a time when society will look back, you know, kind of like the way we do with cigarettes now. Mm-hmm. You know, well, it's like... Oh my God! Everybody smoked. Do you think that sometime in the future there'll be something like that with drinking? There could be. Yeah. There could be. I mean, there's no reason it couldn't. That's yeah. a, smoking is a prime example. Yeah. Of something that can become the cultural expectation yeah. changes. Yeah. Um. But I don't. But I think there's a lot of shaming around smoking. Mm-hmm. And and I'm not sure that shaming is ever the best way. Mm-hmm. It's not the ideal method of change, in my opinion. Honestly, mm-hmm. I I pref- I would love it if we had more of a sense of. I think if we had more space in the world for people who just like didn't have to explain themselves, like so, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, it's no big deal when I tell people I don't eat gluten. Right. Not you know, it's yeah. like people. You know, it's like. Can't you just have a little gluten? Well, actually, mm-hmm. my sister is a little bit like that. One time she was like, well, how bad would it be? And I'm like, it would be very bad. Yeah. Explain yourself. I don't really want to give you the yeah. graphic details, but it is bad. Yeah. You know? And so, mm-hmm. so there is. But then she knew me before I figured out the gluten issue. Yeah. You know, she knew me for a long time. But I also had horrible mm-hmm. stomach pain that would leave me in bed for a mm-hmm. couple of days sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, but now, it, you know, so... Um, but as far as like, um, but with alcohol, I, I do feel like people who do like to drink quite a bit, um, liked me better when I was having a drink. Mm-hmm. And I, so, I mean, so I have clients who say that people won't like me if I don't drink and I'm, there's a part of me that's like, yeah, for real, some people will, might mm-hmm. not, but then were they your friend in the first place? Yeah. You see, I think this is one of the underlying uh, causes for the the continuity of addictive behaviors is the sense of belonging that 
can occur when a person engages in it. I mean, it's that, in some ways, that same sense of belonging is what is the creates the solidarity in recovery circles too. That same dynamic, um, the the process of just stopping a compulsive behavior, um, it certainly, I think, is a, is a valuable like community or public health effort to create spaces where being sober is not questioned or even the public health effort of moving towards a non-shame based positive view of sobriety might be a, a good way of kind of what would be a nice vision that that i am in favor of there, there's these other kinds of addictions so i think that you know speaking of shame because you you can it is possible to like get acclaim for being, you know, a recovery, recovering drug addict or alcoholic. If one redeems oneself, quits it, gets a family back, you know, gets their health back, that is something that truly can be seen as um, like an achievement, a transformation. Um, but then there's other addictions um, where people might not want to brag that they once had them before, you know? Right. Well, that's true. But I don't think that, um, I, well, I mean, it's not exactly a brag anyway. I mean, AA is an anonymous organization. Yeah. So it's like, I think, but I think that's the thing. It's like in general, if we acknowledged that addiction is ubiquitous and we all have it to some extent yeah. in varieties of ways, you know, some less and some more, um, it would just be, it would just be a transformative thing. But yeah. I would say that. The, one of the things that people also contemplate when they're thinking about perhaps choosing sobriety if they've had troubles with with substances, like the substances are possibly even mm -hmm. killing them and ruining their lives, you mm -hmm. know, and they begin to co contemplate making a change to that. Um, one of the reasons they don't sometimes want to make the change is because they feel shame. Like, if I admit mm -hmm. that I have this problem, mm -hmm. then I will have to feel shame for the fact that mm -hmm. I have it. Like, mm -hmm. going to, like, AA. Well, I don't want to go AA because I'll feel ashamed mm -hmm. if I have to acknowledge my issue. Mm -hmm. And so I think somehow, like, getting the shame out of it, like, even the idea of redemption mm -hmm. implies yeah. shame. It does. It, you know. And now that I think about it, too, you know, the kinds of shame that come from um, having a problem be visible socially versus the shame that comes from simply admitting to oneself that, you know, there is a problem, that something that was once thought to be harmless or beneficial has become a problem, you know? Because sometimes I try to think or understand how shame is a barrier to healing. And I know lots of people have written about it, but just me in my own mind trying to think like, you know, how how the motivating factor of shame it, it's built into our society on some levels you know like people um, there, there's the the guilt fact like don't you know if you do something wrong you know you should feel ashamed of yourself this this juxtaposition between regret and shame I don't know I'm getting sidetracked here from the the main topic though and we're close to the uh, well, no, it's 20, is it 30 minutes where it cuts off? 
It seems like it does, and then you have to start it up again. Or at least that's what's happened to me, but I don't don't know if that's inherent in the program. Let's see if it happens. We'll talk a little bit beyond 30, because I'm just curious. Okay, just to find out, and then we'll know. Okay, so, um, well, I don't think it's too off of the topic, because I think that the idea of, like, feeling awkward, like... Like, I don't have a religious restriction to drinking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I don't happen to have that particular... I'm, I haven't become problematically addicted mm-hmm. to substances in my life, or at least not alcohol or drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, coffee and nicotine have been struggles for me, but as far as mm-hmm. coffee goes, um, I'm mm-hmm. not willing to ever give that up. That's my friend. Coffee. I love you, Coffee. Um, but of course, as soon as I make a statement like that, I may have, may, I may change my mind at some point, but, Mm -hmm. but, um, but I mean, it's, it's like, even though I haven't had those and so, but I have just decided that I don't want to do substances because, Mm -hmm. um, I don't like the way it makes me feel. I don't think it's healthy I've worked with too many people in recovery and I feel like I see myself as an ally like mm-hmm. an active ally not just mm-hmm. a sidelines ally mm-hmm. but a participating ally mm-hmm. and plus I like hanging out with people who are in a healthy recovery from substances because they tend to be just like deeper I would say there's a depth and breadth to people in recovery that you don't necessarily automatically see in people generally so that's one of the reasons I've always I just like mm-hmm. people in recovery mm-hmm. and so I want to be I like to participate in those things you know you know the Phoenix is a, a good example of an organization that works to you know break some of the, the stigma that goes along with um, people that have addictions and the the stigma is i don't know if it's a barrier to people um, pursuing a life of recovery but i do think that the the stigma is something that uh, prevents larger traditions from developing in the world that make it easier to kind of reach out for help you know um that's a part of it i think is that just that reaching out you know we were talking a little bit about the 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 intimacy piece there's there's this 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 juxtaposition of terms like intimacy separation connection shame dependence all all of these things are like words that talk about attachment they're words that have to do with adjacency membership belonging i mean i'm just throwing out like some associations here um there's there's like a there's an element of things being juxtaposed against each other without exchanging information. I, I'm really wanting to nail down what this the solitariness that's happening when someone engages in their addiction, this gradual separation, you know. I, I mean I was there in the when the conversation started thinking there's you know, how we've been talking about these these parts that are within us talking mm-hmm. about that this internal yeah. family systems thing yeah i've been trying to think like 
because I have this spatial way of sometimes thinking about the world and trying to think like what is between the parts Any, mm-hmm. anything that's separated has to navigate through some kind of space yeah you're really into it I'm, I'm virtually obsessed it. with it yeah virtually yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I, no. I really am dude I know yeah I, I've been there I've yeah. seen it uh-huh I mean and I wish I, and I it, like this you are really obsessed with it and it it's a or it's a it's a real passion Mm-hmm. you have I, I think that it's something that weaves together a lot of concepts um, my two favorite things that it weaves together are um, shit. culture is one thing um, and the other thing that comes into it is uh guess I want to say sound you know hmm. um, but I'm not sure why a lot of times I'll start sentences in our podcasts with ideas and and just like let the completion come you know it's not like a free association it's like there's an idea that's in there and it wants to be formed but sometimes it's only like talking it out in a conversation that it plants the seed for a more like constructive organized way of thinking about it you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. it kind of can take intuitive impressions and gradually give them some solidity through like having a witnessing process mm-hmm. yeah and I think I think your whole thing of the your spatial understanding of interrelationship is it definitely is a passion and I do see you it's like continuing to kind of bump up against the edge of it and not you know it's like I can tell when people in general when I myself or when other people are bumping up against the edge of their currently known knowledge Mm -hmm. is that the words fail them tend to tend to fail them because there's no because they haven't yet established a language to describe that new intellectual territory yeah and so i think um and and when we're talking about things that are very sensory like what you're talking about i think your your whole idea of spatial relationships Uh in terms of like conscious well i think it's consciousness i think when you say what's between it i think what's always between everything what's Uh the fundamental building block of everything is yeah the thing is the 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 phenomena of consciousness mm-hmm. and I, I and that that's the energy that's between things mm-hmm. whether it's internal constructs yeah. or external yeah maybe a, a fun question to ask just with the consciousness word being out there audible is where does the um, where does addiction fit in to the concept of consciousness well know? okay all right i think my i think this is what I, this is what i'm thinking of it at this point is like the part in the psyche that become that is the addict part is there as a protector mm-hmm. of some thing unhealed some part that feels to the mm-hmm. collective psyche the uh too dangerous for some reason mm-hmm. to feel 
And I think it is often feelings of shame at root. Mm -hmm. Shame and the verbalization on that root level of that shame is some kind of iteration of I'm not good enough. Mm -hmm. I'm bad. I'm not good enough. Right? Mm -hmm. And uh, that belief that gets stuck and I think the addicted part is there to, in a sense, protect the system from feeling that. Mm-hmm. And it is, it carries the burden of, of a, what is, you know, a fairly high consequences method of mm-hmm. protection. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's there to it's there to protect the psyche. So it, so that's where I think figuring out how to unburden the part that is so is well in, in internal family systems there would be like an exiled part, right? That would be the shame in this instance that I'm it's like a shame of like I'm not good enough that would be mm-hmm. associated with some kind of event or experiences. Mm-hmm. And uh then the sub the addicted part protects the system from it and like Mm -hmm. and that's why i mean you you the more severe the addiction is typically the more there is some kind of traumatic Mm -hmm. root that feels especially dangerous to the person Mm -hmm. and therefore they use those they use addiction Mm -hmm. like the the trade-off of even an addiction that really kind of drives the trolley off the rail yeah. Feels like a lesser consequence than feeling the feeling of the unhealed yeah. trauma. Yeah. Do you think, and huge tangent here, but maybe one worth going on because it addresses the, the climate change. Do you think that our society's need for like, inexpensive energy is kind of like an addiction? You know, the way we mm. use gasoline and all of our engines and motors and production that we know that the cumulated effect is like gradually you know raising the temperature of the planet like on a collective scale producing immense virtually inevitable suffering now do you think it might be an example of a collective addiction of some kind yeah and it even collectively there's a part of the collective that is Uh in denial about that very yeah. thing like you're saying you know some people know it's harmful yeah and some people deny yeah and come up with all sorts of strategies to deny so what what might be the the trauma that's at the root of that collective addiction is just this is just a thought experiment hmm. here well if i were looking if i were to look at like an end if i were to imagine that whole collective as an individual yeah i would assume that it would come from a scarcity sense mm-hmm. of I'm not enough, be- and I I don't I'll never have enough, mm-hmm. and I and and if and if 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 someone else has something, they've stolen it from me. Like it's a scarcity consciousness. Yeah. So it's like the fear of I'm not enough, mm-hmm. and I'll never have enough. And so then that is naturally is going to manifest itself as greed, which mm-hmm. manifests itself of I need, I need, I need, I need, I need. Mm-hmm. And, um, and 
people are trying to take my stuff and I'm, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I'm going to starve to death over here with, you know, yeah. with my 10 bajillion million dollars. Right. And, um, and so I think the scare, the sense of scarcity yeah. leads to a sense of greed. So I think maybe it comes from, I, and I think it might be, that might even be the trauma, the collective trauma of how poorly we have treated each other. Uh-huh. And sort of like, sort of like if I keep treating somebody badly, on some level I'm going to be afraid of them, that they're going to mm-hmm. come back and retaliate, right? Mm-hmm. Or they're, if I've been hoarding wealth. Yeah. Then I'm afraid at some point somebody's going to come over and you know mm-hmm. have a dang old revolution yeah. on my head, yeah. right? Yeah. So I think it's like I think it's the I think the underlying uh, shame of the shame of that's hard to look at of how poorly we have treated each other as a species, mm-hmm. yeah. and so we want to distract ourselves and then and then sandbag our lives you know protect yeah, like create right. a fortress around ourselves yeah. to protect ourselves from the oncoming hordes of mm-hmm. retaliators mm-hmm. essentially right yeah. and th- so i think uh, so and then and then people who have a sense of like they've never had enough because society hasn't provided them opportunities to have stuff they're also going to feel like well i'll just take whatever i can get i don't have time or energy to worry about a whole planet i'm just trying to get a sandwich on the table for myself or for my family so i mean it creates this whole thing of like people that don't have enough time or energy to even think Mm -hmm. about anything beyond what's in front of them because they literally are in a state of current scarcity yeah so they are really in like crisis mode and then you've got people who are way past ever having any sort of scarcity ever yeah. Yeah. but they still are greedy because and subconsciously they feel like yeah everything is not enough there's ne- nothing yeah. will ever be enough to fill this fear yeah. i have yeah i can't help but think that there's somehow something informative about this like scarcity reality that those that are suffering experience and the scarcity illusion that the wealthy are experiencing that could somehow inform this discussion of addiction there's something about there's something about wanting more that's a piece of this whereas one wanting more is really truly needing more and the other wanting more is a a fear of, of losing something and this goes back a little bit to the the sense of isolation that occurs mm. you know from from the wanting or the sense of isolation that occurs from not having the resources to connect you know hmm. i love the way you you're so much more organized in the way you put your thoughts together tracy i'm really in admiration of how coherent and articulate articulate you are this evening Really? I am, yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. I don't feel that articulate, to be honest with you. I mean, sometimes I do. I'm just saying right now I don't. I mean, I won't lie. I mean, sometimes I'm like, oh, that was good. But I just said, there, that was pretty cool. Yeah. But I'm not feeling that way tonight. I mean, we're coming up to 45-minute mark, which is, I think, a good time frame for a podcast discussion. 
Well, and I, I feel like we, we went, we went, we didn't really flesh out the microcosm of addiction all that well, I don't think, but we went into a macrocosm. Mm-hmm. So, have, well, if we're, so if you're willing, just to kind of bring it back around. Yeah. We went into a, you said, like you said, a societal aspect, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. What do you think, how could, how could we analogize that back to the microcosm mm-hmm. of the individual? Mm-hmm. Uh, Or maybe we can't. I don't know. I just, I just, yeah. I just feel like it gets too airy, mm-hmm. you know, too lofty sometimes. If we stay, if we just land all the way, in. Mm-hmm. I love, I love thinking about the macrocosm. But mm-hmm. yeah, I would say the way that we can bring it back to the individual, you know. In fact, I'll even bring it back to the like the personal. I mean, sometimes the best way to bring it back is to to do it that way. Yeah. You know, absolutely. Like for me, um, one of the things that that I am working with that is like something that I think of is sort of like a my current addiction is this this need to have a certain kind of image or appearance. You know, to have my body be a certain way, and to have other people's bodies be a certain way either too, which is a side effect of that. You know, mm-hmm. right? Um, and. I think my attachment to that image is kind of like an addiction, but it's it's a thought. It's subtle. So I think the way I'm bringing it back to myself personally is that, you know, there's a there's an element of di- addiction that is wanting to be in control of things. You know? Yeah. And I think you're you're kind of familiar with the idea that a lot of times people with um, body issues. There, there's definitely a control thing that goes there, the control over the eating, the dieting. But I, you know, just really trying to bring it back to myself here, this, this idea that things will be okay if I am a certain way, you know, mm-hmm. is kind of, I think, where people are with, with addictions in general, is there's something right here in the moment that I'm thinking is not enough or not good enough, you know? And I'm thinking there is something that I have to do or become to to be okay. Right. You know? And I think sticking with that as a, a fundamental piece, you know, as a bit of a, a lodestone in the exploratory process of addiction. What important. does lodestone mean? I don't know what that means. I've heard it before, but yeah. I don't really know what it means. Um, I think it's old-timey speak for magnet. Um, oh. Like a, a lodestone, I believe this is the word, um, Maybe I'm even wrong. I've always thought a lodestone was a magnet, you know, that it's a, like the old rock that when you hang it from a thread, yeah, get your Google out here. I'm making this up. It's like a stone that is magnetized and you hold it and it points towards the north because of the way you hold it. That is my, my brain just making shit up. Maybe not. Let's see. Lodestone meaning. We're looking it up yeah. right now. A piece of magnetite oh, okay. or other naturally magnetized mineral able to be used as a magnet. So you were right. A thing that is a, is the focus of attention or attraction. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, okay. So it's not necessarily compass like. There's no definition. It can be used as a magnet though. Okay. Okay, okay. So alright, so so it's a little, I didn't mean to derail yeah. you but I just didn't know what it meant. Oh. So say it again. I'm sorry, but no, whenever no. I hear a word, I don't know. You know yeah. how I am. 
No, I, I just think that there's some fundamental force involved underneath addiction with the assertion that there's an element of consciousness that thinks things need to be a certain way. And as long as there is a push towards being something other than what is right now, there will be the, the energy of addiction will, will be in there on some level or another. Huh. Right, and I think, and people, people, I guess I went from macro to micro rather than from macro to personal. <laughs> no, that was good. That was yeah. good. That was good. And it's hard to talk about personal stuff because there's stigma associated with addiction. Mm-hmm. But um, so I would say, uh, yeah, I would say that that makes a lot of sense, and I think that's, you know. People are really afraid of accepting themselves the way they are because they think that then they will not mm-hmm. advance. They will yeah. not change anything. And there is this really sweet spot where a person can accept themselves exactly the way they are and still mm-hmm. say, and I would like yeah. to change something in myself. I want mm-hmm. to learn. I want to experience a new thing. I want to interact with my body in such a way that I change its shape. I mean, you can do that without feeling like the way... A person can do that without feeling like the way they are right now is not okay. Yeah. The the assertion, though, where addiction takes place is that there is a space of not okayness from which a person acts, acts, you know? Mm-hmm. There's something about, like, agency within not okayness. <laughs> yeah, and I think it, it. And I think one thing that happens in in addiction because it has a the com, compulsive aspect. It feels like a sense of urgency. Mm-hmm. I need to change this right now. Yeah, and that's you know dependency. If we want to go outside the realm of addiction, is very much that where the body thinks there is something off here. Balance is off. Bring this substance to make things okay. You know, the kind of thing that's not you know the addictive behavior stuff, but just dependency which figures into addiction but that's that's another story okay well i think that that i think we brought it home i think yeah. we i think we landed the plane pretty sort of okay i think so on too. that all right so well too. cool well i love you as always i love you too dear okay later later <laughs>